The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Steve Jobs, the uh, legendary founder of Apple, died in his mid-50s of pancreatic cancer. And Walter Isaacson, who was Jobs' biographer, uh, recalled during one of his final uh, series of conversations with Jobs. um, And during one of those conversations, um, Jobs shifted the conversation to the topic of religion and death. Walter Isaacson, in a radio interview, said this, I remember sitting in the back garden on a sunny day, on a day when he was feeling bad, referring to Jobs. And he talked about whether or not he believed in an afterlife. He said, sometimes I'm 50-50 on whether there's a God. It's the great mystery we never quite know. But I like to believe there's an afterlife. I like to believe the accumulated wisdom doesn't just disappear when you die, but somehow it endures. Jobs paused for a second. But maybe it's just like an on-off switch and click and you're gone. And then he paused for another second and he smiled and said, maybe that's why I didn't like putting on-off switches on Apple devices. In her eulogy, Jobs' sister, uh, Mona, said that as he was taking his last breaths, he ended up uh, looking up from the bed and uh, staring for a long time at each of his children. And then he turned his attention to his, his wife, Lorene. But then, right before he passed away, those who were in the room and witnessed this said that he then looked up past the family that was gathered around him and was staring at something beyond them. And then these were his final words before he breathed his last. Three times, Jobs is witnessed to have said, Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And then he passed away. Were those just the random utterances of a brain right before it was shutting down? Or did Jobs see something there in that moment right before his death that no one else could see? You know, not everyone, let's be honest, is interested in religion. But just about everyone is curious about death and the afterlife. Is this life all that there is? Or is, this, or is there something or someone waiting for us on the other side? And then if so, what is the connection between this life and the life that is to come? What does it mean for us to prepare ourselves for the afterlife? Today's topic is on heaven and earth and the way that these two realms relate to one another. And I think in our mind we have this tendency to think of heaven as this mysterious dreamlike place in the clouds where we're all sort of floating around as immaterial spirits. Or maybe some of us imagine it as an endless church service 
that continues uninterrupted for eternity. And if that's what we think awaits us in the afterlife, it shouldn't be too surprising that for even many Christians, uh, we secretly don't look forward to heaven all that much. It's, it's not that we don't want to be there, but I think it's just because we can't relate to images like that. We, we just can't picture what life like that would look like because it is so different than the life that we experience on this earth. What I would argue is that many of these conceptions we have of heaven actually don't come from the Bible, but they're actually influenced more by ancient Greek philosophies like Platonism and Epicureanism rather than what Scripture says. And so like the Bible Project video did, I want to anchor our understanding of heaven in the broader story of creation and redemption so that our view of both heaven and earth will be rooted in Scripture and what the story of the Bible is. And I'll begin by first looking at how the Bible describes heaven, and then I'll apply that understanding to how heaven and earth relate to one another, and then lastly, we'll look at how does that relate to our future hope. You know, whenever the term heaven is used in the Bible, it's clear that it refers to that place where God dwells. In the Bible Project video, they called heaven God's space and earth as our space. And I think that's a helpful way to think about it. When Solomon was dedicating the temple, he offered this prayer. In 2 Chronicles 6, verse 21, it says, And listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel. When they pray toward this place, speaking about the temple, and it says, And listen from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. He repeats this phrase, Listen from heaven your dwelling place, over and over again in this prayer that he offers that day. References to heaven also often emphasize God's supreme rule as king. Heaven, in other words, is the place where he is worshipped and his will is carried out perfectly. So you have these verses like Isaiah 66, verse 1. This is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Nehemiah 9.6, you give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. Job 25 verse 2, dominion and awe belong to you, to God. He establishes order in the heights of heaven. In Psalm 103 verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. And so I think one of these misconceptions that we have of heaven is that it's like this um, most amazing Disney world imaginable where basically once you get there, you get whatever you want. You know, you, you can conjure anything into existence just by wishing it and you get it. And again, that's a very Hollywood view of heaven. But when we look at what the Bible says, it's not so much a place where we get everything that we want but it is the realm in which God is worshipped and obeyed perfectly. So that's kind of the picture that the Bible gives us of what heaven is. It's God's space, this realm in which he rules as king and his will is perfectly followed. Well, what does it mean then for heaven to meet earth? 
Well, rather than thinking about heaven as some geographic location, like heaven is there up in the sky or out there, the Bible describes heaven more like an earth, more like separate dimensions of one and uh, separate dimensions within which there could be overlap between the two. So, for example, in the Garden of Eden, before sin entered, it was a paradise where God dwelt. That's one of the first descriptions of heaven, right? And then where his will was perfectly obeyed, the other description of heaven, right? And so in that sense, the garden was a place where heaven and earth met each other in a single location. God's space and our space coming together as one. In last week's message, I pointed out how there were two trees in the middle of this garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And both of these trees were combined God's invitation to Adam and Eve to choose between life and death. Only when we understand the way that these two trees are intertwined with one another can we grasp the choice that God was inviting Adam and Eve to. Humans, as I said last week, weren't created inherently immortal, I believe. But God invited them to eat from this tree of life so that they could live forever in the presence of God through this tree. But they could only eat from this tree of life if they also resisted the temptation to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because eating from that tree meant that they would choose their own wisdom over God's wisdom and care over them. God, in other words, didn't force the choice of life on humans. But he gave them freedom to choose either life with him or death apart from him. And sadly, they chose the latter. Genesis 3, 5 through 6, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. You see, when Adam and Eve ate from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what they were in essence declaring was that they no longer trusted God, that they would decide for themselves What was in their best interest? To choose life meant Adam and Eve had to not only choose to eat from the tree of life, but that they also had to choose not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Both of those decisions went hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. And so in the meaning of these two trees, the Bible makes this extraordinary truth claim about what life is. It says that eternal life is so much more than simply living forever. It's about a life of flourishing that flows out of trusting fellowship and obedience, surrender to God. That's how the Bible defines eternal life. And this makes total sense, doesn't it? When we understand what heaven is as a place where God is worshipped and he rules as king. But what we also see in this creation story is that sin has now entered the story, has entered creation. Humans have chosen death over life. And the tree of life has been removed. Adam and Eve are banished 
from the garden, heaven and earth are now split. And the rest of the Bible's story is about God's mission to once again bring heaven and earth together. I think that's an interesting way to summarize, actually, the entire story of the Bible, is how heaven and earth that are now split will once again be brought together. And throughout both the Old and New Testaments, we see these moments when heaven and earth actually do meet. One is found in Genesis chapter 28, the story of Jacob, verses 10 through 12 and verses 16 to 17. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And so... Jacob realizes that through that experience that this is a sacred place, this place that was formerly called Luz, but he would change the name to Bethel, or in Hebrew, Beit El, which literally means house of God. Because what he is saying is, is in this location, heaven and earth met. There was this interface between these two realms, and I experienced the presence of God. And there are numerous other examples of this in the Bible, like Isaiah 6, which I preached on just a couple weeks ago, in which Isaiah has a vision of the glorious throne room of God. The tabernacle and the, ter- and the temple were also representative of this place where heaven and earth meet. And I'm not going to go into too much detail into that because that's going to be the entire topic of next week. But it's this fascinating picture in the Old Testament, these moments where heaven and earth reconnect again. And there's this moment where we have a glimpse into the heavenly realms. Well, if we fast forward to the New Testament, we find this interesting story. It's the beginning of John's gospel. In John chapter 1, verse 47 to 51, it says, When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here truly is an Israel in whom, Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe me because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God descending, ascending and descending on the Son of God. Of man. Jesus is clearly making a connection between Jacob's vision of heaven and Bethel and himself. And what is interesting is that in the story, as Jesus tells it, what you will see are these angels in the stairway of heaven connecting right on me. And in essence, what Jesus was saying is. I am that bridge between heaven and earth. It is through me that these two realms will ultimately be connected 
as one. And so it isn't a surprise then that Jesus announces his public ministry with these words in Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's now among you. Luke chapter 17, verse 20 to 21. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the, king, when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. What Jesus is saying is really remarkable. He is saying that heaven has already now begun to break into earth. And it is through my ministry that this kingdom has come. Jesus is not talking about a future event, but a present reality that the people on earth were already now able to experience. What Jesus meant when he said the kingdom of heaven is already upon you is that he was saying God's space has already now begun to invade your space. And he demonstrated through these signs like the miraculous healings and forgiveness of sins and casting out demons and even raising the dead. And I think we need to really, as Christians, wrestle with that is that heaven has already begun to break into earth through the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's not here in its fullness, but it has already begun to invade the kingdoms of this world. And you and I, as followers of Jesus, are invited to participate in that kingdom work. That's why when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he told them in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 10 in the Lord's Prayer, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you hear the words of Jesus? The prayer of his disciples is, Let more and more of heaven invade earth through the prayer of your saints. As we see evil and sin overturned and the presence of God experienced in greater and greater power through the prayer of the saints. That's something remarkable, isn't it? That already now heaven is invading earth and we can participate in that awesome kingdom work. And I don't think we as Christians grapple enough with the power of that prayer and the reality of that statement. I shared with you a few weeks back how in some of the struggles and the discouraging things that I was going through that I had been praying, God, your kingdom come. Let me see some evidence of that. And then as I was sitting there watching the service stream at home, that this knee was just healed instantly, right? And I think people have been asking me periodically, so how's the knee now? I think they were kind of skeptical, going like, was it just good for a few weeks? And I swear to God, still now, up to this moment, it's still fine. There's, there's no problem at all on the knee. It doesn't mean God gave me an immortal knee, so I could still get injured at some point. That's the problem of reality living in the flesh. But could I challenge you as a church? Are there ways that God wants to show more and more of his power at work in your life that we just don't have the faith to believe in? 
and to pray. I think it does begin with prayer, right? Because it's not about what we can do through our might and our intelligence and our ability. It's about the work of God and his power breaking into our world. And we accomplish that work on our knees in prayer. We need to be a praying church that is regularly saying, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth, this realm, our space, just as it is done perfectly in your space in heaven. Well, what does this mean about how we should think about our future? I think one of the problems that I see in the church today is that many Christians actually think about heaven as the destination where you go when you die, right? That phrase is so common among believers. When you die, you go to heaven. This may worry you a bit, but do you know that in the Bible, dying and go to heaven is a phrase that is never used, not even once? Going to heaven, in other words, is never the wording that Scripture uses to describe the status of people who have died. Now, there are some references in the Bible of people who've died and then gone to be with God, to be in God's presence. That terminology is used. So we see Jesus on the cross, and we see him talking to the thief that's next to him and says, today you will be with me in, interesting, he doesn't say heaven, but he says paradise, which is the same word as Eden, the garden. But what we know is this. That those who die, and here's another interesting thing, is the way that the scripture talks about people who have passed away in Christ is to call them asleep, that they're sleeping. And this is that, that there's maybe a sense in which those people who are asleep, who have died already, go to be with God. Okay? But that the Bible describes as a temporary state, not the permanent state of eternity. Rather than saying that the dead go to heaven, if we want to be faithful to the language that the Bible uses, the future hope is usually described as the language of resurrection. Resurrection. Luke chapter 20, verse 35 to 36 says, But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. And again in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35, women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better (coughs) resurrection. So in other words, those who are still alive and those who have died in Christ who are, quote, asleep, in the language of Scripture, are together awaiting the hope of the resurrection. That is why Paul describes Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits of our own resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19 to 20, it says, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What Paul is saying is this. When we see the fact that Jesus rose again and, and he's talking to many people who had even witnessed it themselves, the resurrected body of Jesus. And he said, what that gives us hope for is that just as God the Father raised his son from the dead, we have the anticipation that we too will experience that same resurrection one day ourselves. That is the Christian hope, is resurrection. Resurrection. But then the question is this. Yeah, great, we'll be resurrected, but then where do we go? Don't we go to heaven? Isn't that the destination in terms of location? And interestingly, no. The reason why the Bible does not say that you die and go to heaven is because what the Bible actually teaches is that we don't go to heaven, but heaven comes down to earth. That is how ultimately these two realms will be united. It's not us being beamed up to heaven, but heaven coming down to us here on this earth. Look at Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, look at the language here. God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every, wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The vision that John sees is of a renewed creation. And I heard spoke about this last Easter, but there's different ways that the Bible uses the word new. One way you can think about it in English is new like I got a new car, which usually means I got rid of my old car and bought a completely different car. That's a new car. But the Bible also uses the word new in a, a way that we would usually describe as renewed, which is not so much that the thing itself was discarded for something completely different, but that this thing was so transformed that, in essence, we describe it as new. And that's the way that the Bible is talking about a new heaven and a new earth. Not so much that this earth is wiped away and a whole new planet is placed in its place, but more in the sense that God brings about such a radical renewal and a redemption of this creation that it's like an entirely new work of God. And so when you think about that, that is saying something really profound. And it is this. When you are trying to picture what will heaven be like, you know, and you're trying to think about streets of gold and angels flying around everywhere and all of that, there are no pearly gates. No mention of pearly gates in the Bible who knows where that came from? Is it, I don't know if it's uh, Milton or Dante or something like that. But when we think about what will heaven be like, I think what we're actually really invited to is what will a renewed earth look like? 
when God brings healing to this land and restores everything that is so broken about this creation and makes it whole again. And I think that is something we can picture, isn't it? It is just picturing, imagine the best possible day on earth where there is no sin to mar things. And imagine where there is no brokenness, no conflict of people killing one another, no death, no disease. But imagine an earth where God actually walks like he did in the garden among us. And we see his presence with our own eyes so that faith is no longer something we need because we see him for ourselves. And we enjoy his presence every day. That is the future hope of the Christian, is a renewed creation in this life. No harps, no floating on clouds, no wings on our back, but just the best day on earth imaginable, and even that doesn't begin to capture what life for eternity is going to be like for those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. And that is something I so long to see and want to be a part of and hope for in my own life. I think the way that we view this tree I talked about last week is so often like God has put this random test before us as if to try to trip up Adam and Eve and to catch them in some arbitrary mistake that they made. And I think often that same kind of mentality is often applied to heaven. And it can be like this. God doesn't want a lot of people in heaven. He's kind of stingy like that. And so rather than allowing a lot of people into his eternal rest, he's created these arbitrary commands that you have to obey. And if you don't keep all of them, then he won't let you into heaven. And even if we don't hold that view because we know that Jesus died for us and our sins, and it's not about our works but about his grace, even when we believe all of those things about Jesus and the cross, I think we still fall into this trap of equating salvation with knowing the right information to basically pass an exam when we get to heaven. You know, back in the high school and college days, I remember taking these evangelism classes. And that's the way that we were actually taught how to share our faith with non-Christians. Is that you're supposed to go up to them and say, when you die and stand before God at the gates of heaven, and he were to turn and ask you, why should I let you in to my kingdom? What is your response, right? In other words, when you die Before you're allowed to go into heaven, there's going to be a quiz. And so you better know the right answer to that quiz because that's going to be your ticket into heaven. I think the danger with that view is that we've reduced salvation to an agreement to a set of facts about Jesus and the cross. And we can give a lot of people false assurance of their salvation when all it amounts to is, can you agree with these historical facts that they actually happen? Because God is going to ask you that when you get to heaven, and you better have the right answer. The Bible never describes salvation like that. 
being qualified for heaven isn't about having all the right answers to an entrance exam. It is about a heart that has experienced the mercy and love of Jesus and longs to live under his care and leadership for eternity. In other words, through Christ's death on a cross, Jesus reconciled us to God and has given us a new life so that now we can actually desire to live under God's rule over our lives. This is what it means to recover what was lost in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve chose death over life. Rather than choosing death apart from God, through Jesus, we are given an opportunity to choose life with God. And that begins in this present life, even before we reach the life to come that comes after death. Romans chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says, For if by the trespass of the one man, referring to Adam, death reigned through the one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? What Paul is saying is that Jesus has undone the curse that came under Adam and has now opened the door to be reconciled with God and experience new life. And that's not just fire insurance to know where we're going to go when we die, but that relationship begins now in the present of learning how to trust in him and walk with him. And it ought to paint for us a very different picture of heaven as not so much God trying to block desperate people who want to get in, But from that framework of Scripture, it is, do those people actually really want to be in heaven in the first place, if that's what heaven is like? C.S. Lewis, in The Problem of Pain, writes this, I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful, rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside, I do not mean that the ghosts may not wish to come out of hell in the vague fashion where an envious man wishes to be happy. But they certainly do not will even the first preliminary stages of that self-abandonment through which alone the soul can reach any good. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved just as the blessed forever submitting into obedience, become through all eternity more and more free. Do you see the picture that Lewis is painting for us? That this is the choice that is made. I don't want to be under God's rule. I don't want his leadership in my life. I would rather choose death apart from God than life with him. And so as we share our faith with others and talk about this hope that we have in Jesus, it's not just trying to convince people about a historical fact that happened years ago, but it is inviting them into a life of surrender that they might know the goodness of God for them and the plans that he wishes for them. And that is the invitation that is laid for us this day as well. If you claim that heaven is your destination, 
Are you living daily in the reality of that trust in Jesus Christ today? Are you learning more and more what it means to experience the life of blessing under his leadership and the joy of knowing his power at work in you? Let me just close with these words and then we'll end. In Romans chapter 8, verse 18 to 21, it says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. What Paul is describing in these words is a renewed creation in which everything will be made new and we can live forever in the joy of God's goodness. And he says, what Paul is trying to say to us is, whatever your conception of heaven it is, whatever your vision of the eternal life is, what Paul is saying is, it's going to be better than that. It's going to be so much better than anything that you can imagine what God is preparing for those who love him. Let's pray. My hope, my sincere hope is that we as the people of God would know these realities deep in our heart. I think there's a very worrisome tradition that has arisen in the church that tries to lead people into what's quote called salvation by simply getting them to agree to a list of doctrinal truths and then giving them the assurance that as long as you quote believe these things, you know you go to heaven. But this is not the way that the Bible itself tells the story of heaven and earth. It says that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And when Christ came to the earth, he said that that kingdom of heaven has already begun to break into the kingdoms of this world. And so he calls us to make the opposite choice that Adam and Eve made that day in the garden, to surrender to the wisdom of God over our own wisdom and to submit ourselves to the trusting leadership that God desires to provide in our lives. And when we do that, we have also the assurance that when we die, our security is ensured in Him. And it's not so much about us going to heaven, but one day heaven is going to come down to earth. And we will take part in the great resurrection where we will be raptured together with Christ. And for the rest of eternity, we will be spent in the joy of his presence, living on this earth with the presence of God dwelling among us, experiencing wholeness and healing without sin or death. In a moment, we will go ahead and come to the Lord's table. What Jesus said when he had that first communion with his disciples is that every time we observe the Lord's table, it is an anticipation of 
that great day. It is to look forward, not just looking back, at the day when the kingdom will be consummated and we will know the goodness of God in its fullness. That's what this means of grace of the Lord's table represents for us. Every time we eat it, it is the anticipation of the great wedding banquet of the Lamb. When one day Christ will walk among us here on this earth and we will eat at his table and enjoy his presence forever. And so as you think about that hope, I want to invite you to go ahead and first take the bread and then go ahead and take the cup as symbolizing the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus Christ on the cross.